Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Solid Ground Church, where every week we share messages recorded during our weekly gatherings in Lewis, Delaware. If you have questions or if we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to this week's message. All that said, we are in a series right now called Christmas Names, where we are looking at uh, the names that are prophesied about Jesus by uh, the angel Gabriel to uh, Mary. And so we're going to start with the same passage we did last week, and then we'll go into a little bit today. So Luke 1, starting at verse 26, says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he uh, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means uh, the Lord saves. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And verse 37, I just love, for nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. So last week, what we did was we, we looked at uh, the first thing that, that Gabriel or Gabriel tells Mary about who this child that she's going to have is, that he will be great. And we looked at the impact of Jesus Christ on human history. We found six ways that Jesus changed the earth forever. I mean, there's six uh, big ones. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this phrase right here, son of the most high. What's that mean? Son of the most high. Um, and I'm going to just tell you up front we're going to go profoundly theological today. And I know that's not always what, what all of us want. Sometimes what we want, like we come to church and we sit down and, and, and like, uh, by, by the way, I want to just be clear. I don't believe that anyone is ever here by accident or watching abroad or online by accident. If you are here, I believe it's because the Holy Spirit has drawn you in and he's got something for you. I believe that. But the thing to understand is we're not always aware of what that might be. Sometimes, I mean, it is. Like, we, we hear the message, like, oh, my gosh, that spoke to me. as I was talking about this thing in the, in the car on the way over. And sometimes, we're like, what do we do with that? Today, we're going to deal with something that doesn't have, like, we kind of look at it. And we're like, what's, what's the relevance of this for my marriage? What's the relevance of this for my career? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I'm going to entrust something to you today. I'm going to entrust a core of the Christian faith that's older than all of us, something that, that's part, uh, that's bigger than all of us, part of a movement of God that spans into the billions that has, that has gone forward for the last 2,000 years. And I say entrust to you because here's the thing I need you to understand. We are, the, it's, right now, it's the torch handed to us. We've been entrusted this. Sound doctrine, okay? And it might not seem like that's that big of a deal. And yet, if we don't carry it, who will? 
okay? So if in this moment you go, I don't understand the immediate, like, what do I do with this? I want you to understand, this is something that if you're in the family of God, I need you to carry this for your own hearts and for the hearts that come after you, okay? All right, so the question. When the Bible talks about Jesus being the son of the most high or son of God, what in the world is it talking about? This is a, like, if we've grown up in church, many of us, we are used to hearing Jesus is the son of God or I mean, even uh, grown up in America, Jesus is the son of God. Okay, great. What is that talking about? And here's the crazy part. It's not just one thing. It's not just one thing. Like, I mean, there, there's several. I'm gonna outline sort of three big ones today for you to know as you're opening your Bibles and you're reading them on your own and when you find the Bible talking about Jesus as the son of God, this is usually one of three things that it's talking about. Okay, now the first one's the obvious one, his parentage, his parentage, that, that literally God the Father is his father. Recap verses 34 and 35. Here, like, so the angel says to Mary that, that she's gonna conceive and bear a son, and Mary says in verse 34, uh, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, let me be clear here, okay? Some modern critics, what they do with this verse right here is they insert historical skepticism. So what they do is they go, listen, okay, like this just sort of shows that Christians have copied other ancient religions. Because you could think like the story of Hercules, right, where Zeus goes and he has relations with human women and, and her, one particular human woman. And, and I mean, because Zeus just kind of gets around. Um, but like, he does, okay? Like, but, but, like, and this woman conceived, and that's Hercules. He's half God, half man. And so they go, listen, that, that's what Christians did. They just took an older story, and they adapted it for their purposes, to which I say you are fundamentally misunderstanding the text, okay? Because the language tells you this, has, this is not like Zeus at all, okay? This isn't about a sexual relationship. In fact, the language that, that uh, Gabriel uses is actually creation language. Like, when it says, okay, like, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, like hovering over you. This is meant to remind you of Genesis 1. Like when God creates the world and he creates life, you remember what it says about the Holy Spirit? It says he hovered over the surface of the deep. Remember that? Okay, like, like right before like God brings life where there was no life, the Spirit of God is hovering, like he's overshadowing it. That's the idea right here. Like, yeah, you, Mary, you're absolutely a virgin. Yeah, you're absolutely, you shouldn't expect to conceive and bear a child. But the same God who created everything is at it again. It's really, really cool, okay? Because what it means is, what it means is, it's okay as a Christian to believe in the virgin birth. Like, there, there's been this other thing that's kind of arisen in our years, and people, like, it's so weird to me when sometimes people, like, believe in some miracles of Jesus, but not others. Like, that's just odd to me. And people are like, well, like, you know, I can believe that he fed the 5,000, but really the virgin birth, come on. And they're like, like, really, you're okay with the other one? Like, what, like, what is that? Okay, but, but here's the thing to understand. Luke fully expects you to believe in a virgin birth. He does. And we'll see why he expects that a little bit later on. First thing we have to understand with this idea of, okay, what does it mean when we say Jesus is son of God is it has to do with his parentage, that God literally is his father. Okay, second thing is this. And this is a really, really big one. It has to do with his kingship, his kingship. The idea that Jesus is called uh, the Son of God is a term of royalty. Now we find this um, in the Old Testament, like this term Son of God isn't just used for 
a, a divine coming Messiah. It's used of Solomon at one point. Why? Because they were sort of believed that you know, they were son of God, they, they were in God's ranks. But, but it's not just Solomon. In fact, the Old Testament, when it talks about this idea of God having a son and it looks to a day in the future and speaks prophetically, it's got something really specific in mind. In fact, I want to reference something. This, this comes from, uh, from a psalm that David wrote about a thousand years before Jesus. This is Psalm 2. And actually, this is a psalm that the New Testament authors would, would refer back to as they're talking about Jesus. It says this. Look at this, Psalm 2, starting verse 1. Why do the, and just stay with me because this is really, really sweet payoff. Just stay with me, okay? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, fun fact for you, uh, that word that we translated as anointed, I highlighted it uh, because it's the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's where we get our word Messiah from, okay? Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And in other words, David's going, listen. And we know that David's not talking about his life because the kings of the earth, like some kings fought against him, but the, like all the kings ever, they didn't rally up against David like this. He's speaking about someone who is yet to come. All right, and he's going, listen. The people of the world, the way the world works is people decide, I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. Let me throw off the chains of God. Let me throw all these things. Like, come on, like, you know, like religion and stuff, like, and all these rules and stuff. And all, like, it's just, it's holding us back. So how about we get rid of all of that? Now, does that sound familiar a little bit, right? Isn't it kind of narrow-minded to sort of, like, believe, that, okay, this is how life is to be lived? Like, should I really believe in the Bible? Should I really believe in uh, a God, like why not just a bunch of gods? It's not narrow mind to say that your God is the true one. And, and, and like right here, David's going, listen, this is what people do. What people do is they rally against God because they've decided that they want to be king, not him. And so he continues. Here's how God responds to that. The one enthroned, verse four, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Now, just check that. Like when it says like the Lord scoffs at them. Because how many of us, we look at the times that we live in and we flip out. Oh my gosh, things are so immoral now. Oh my gosh, things are falling apart. We're losing values. We're this, we're that. And I just want to remind you, first of all, we're not living in any more evil of a time than, than any other point in history. Okay. But number two, no one thwarts the, the promises and plans of God. Like literally in this image is the entire world rallying against God and God's like, Psh, what are you going to do? All right. Why? Because he's greater than all of it. He continues, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And now check this out. So I will, like David's speaking prophetically through the, someone else's eyes. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. In other words, hey, God is raising up a king who he calls son. And you know what? Nobody can destroy his kingdom. In fact, the most that the world throws at him fails. He dashes them like pieces of pottery. I mean, that's an incredible language there. Okay. Like the biggest, most powerful humanly might, Jesus breaks it like a sensitive clay pot. It's got nothing on him. Haven't we seen this in the world? Whenever the, the forces of the earth and the forces of the enemy push back against the forces of the Lord, 
and they decide, hey, we're gonna get rid of Christianity, we're gonna get rid of the gospel, we're gonna make it illegal, we're gonna make it hard to be a Christian, what happens? The movement spreads even more. Why? Because it's right here. They can't compare to him. And so it says, therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, uh, you rulers of the earth. Hey, if you wanna know the right thing to do, he says, verse 11, serve the Lord with, Serve the Lord and celebrate his rule with, with trembling. And, the, and this is weird language, but I'll get to it. Kiss his son. We'll be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. And like, we hear this language, like, kiss his son. Like, what's that all about? Um, it, it, it's a friendly greeting. It's not talking about anything romantic. Like, what? Okay, like, it's this idea of, like, listen, okay, Instead of rejecting the reign of the son, instead of rejecting, I'm gonna do it my way and we're gonna set up, instead just embrace him. It's gonna go so much better for you than that. Okay, now here's the deal. Here's the deal. This like passage is not an isolated sort of way off in the distance thing that nobody thought about. In fact, when you go to the New Testament, this is the lens, like one of the primary lenses that Jesus' followers view when they're thinking and talking about him. I'll give you an example, okay? So there's a story um, in the Gospels where Jesus and his followers are at this place called Caesarea Philippi. Okay, I keep chugging water because my, my voice is not what it has been in days past. Okay, so, all right, so they're there. And uh, there, there's a crowd of people out there and Jesus decides to ask his followers, hey, let's, let's take a census. Who do these people think that I am? Who do they think? And some of them are going, well, like, all right, some of them think that you're Elijah, you know, like you're this great prophet of old. There's things, maybe you're Jeremiah or you're another prophet, like you're a great like man of God. And Jesus goes, okay, okay, okay. But you guys know me. Um, who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's response, Matthew 16, 16. He says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one, the son of the living God. He's thinking of Psalm 2. Hey, you're the Christ, like, like the anointed one, God's promised king. And you're the son. You're the one that, that, that God looks at and says, today uh, I am your father. And by the way, it's not just Peter. I don't know if you remember, there's a story of Jesus when he meets Nathaniel for the first time and he reads Nathaniel's prophetic mail and tells him stuff that he couldn't have known. You remember how Nathaniel's taken back what he says when he hears Jesus do this? And John 149 says, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel, Christ, Mashiach, Messiah. Okay, like this is who you are because for him to be the son of God it is a term of royalty that he is in fact the promised king of Israel. Israel. So that's the second thing. Like when, when the New Testament talks about Jesus being the son of God, okay, about like his parentage, we've talked about his kingship, but there's a third one as well, and this is really just good to know, okay? When it talks about Jesus being the son of God, it's talking about his nature and divinity. His nature and divinity. Uh, a little while back, I was, uh, I don't even remember this, we, we, we went through the gospel of John, and uh, we open John 1, 1, like this first talk of the series. And, you know, John 1 begins with John's bold declaration. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You remember that, right? Okay, like literally, like he's going, hey, listen, Jesus was with God in the beginning, and, and Jesus was God in the beginning, because we believe in one God who's existed forever in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God. There's never been a point where, where any of them weren't God, you know? 
Same God, one God, okay? All right, and I, I, I preached this just thinking, duh. Like, yeah, this is basic Christian doctrine. But really, anything happened. Uh, that week, I got an email from a girl. I was like, hey, like, you were saying that Jesus is God, but he's the son of God. And, she grew, and it turns out she had grown up in this church tradition that didn't believe that Jesus was God. So I would call that a cult, but because it's not Orthodox Christianity. But still, it was like an awesome opportunity to be like, hey, actually, no, we believe that he's God. And you go, well, well how does that work, okay? Because if it says that, that he's the son of God and he calls God his father, then how in the world can he be God, right? And this is where we get tripped up. And the reason we get tripped up is because we think differently than the people who wrote the Bible. Here's what I mean. Um, so we have a 21st century Western mindset with how we read the scriptures. But they were first century Easterners. And the way they spoke about things is not the way that we spoke about things. The way that they thought about things is not the way that, that we thought about things. Um, and so we hear the same words, but we understand them differently. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever taken a trip to England. All right, if you've ever been to England. Okay, cool. All right, you, you might know this. In England, there are some things where they use the same words as we do, yet they meet something completely different. So for instance, okay, like if I go to Popeye's here and I order a thing of biscuits, and then I go to England and I ask for biscuits, completely different. Here, it's delicious, flowery, buttery goodness that soothes my soul, okay? In England, it's candy. It's candy bars, all right? Or is it chocolate? Like, yeah, it is. You're shaking your head, it absolutely is. Crackers. Crackers. Oh, is it? No, because they have, it's cookie, yeah, because they have like, they have like the Twix biscuits. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of right. Like, I'm not from England. Like, <laughs> all right. There you go. All right. What's the other one? All right, uh, chips, right? Like chips, you've got, okay, chips, they're like lace potato chips. The other one, they're fries. Did I get that right? Is it okay? Okay, great. I don't get that much. Look, so. Um, the moral offense on Eric's face just now. I have never, like, Eric and I have known each other for a long time. I've never seen him so outraged by anything that I've said. Wow. <laughs> All right, look. Point remains. Like, the way that you experience the word is determined by your culture and, and, and what you've grown up in. And this is also true when it comes to the idea of son. For us, we hear son and we think purely lineage. But that's not what they thought. So I'll give you an example, okay? Let's see how they would understand the phrase. So this comes from John uh, 5 where Jesus is teaching and there's some people who are incredibly offended by what he says. And look at, let's just, read, let's just read it, okay? So John 5, starting verse 16 says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Look at their response when he claims God is his father. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now this, and that's accurate. And this is how the Bible sees sonship, okay? To be the son of something is to identify yourself in its camp. Now, this is really, really big. Um, in other words, it's to claim the same essence as the thing. So I'll give you an example. Uh, my, my name is Bert Miller. My last name is Miller. My father is Bruce Miller, okay? Now, I am every bit as much Miller as my father is, okay? Why? Because to have that is to be of the same tribe. And so this is really big, okay? Because when we think about God, all right, 
to say I have the same essence as God, that sort of everything that makes God God is in me. There's only one God. Okay, so you can't say, all right, you, you can't say, okay, like, I, I am the son of God unless you are identifying yourself with God himself. Because, the, like, to be the son of something is to be equally that thing. And this is what the New Testament authors get us. For instance, in Colossians 2.9, they say this, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, by the way, okay, when we say the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, what he's saying is, listen, everything that makes God God is in Christ, all right? So there's nothing about who God is and, and, and what God is. Like, it's, it's fullness. Like, everything that makes God God is in Christ. Okay? So why? Because he's the son of God. So everything about God's essence, his nature, his divinity is in Christ. This is why the phrase son of God doesn't diminish him and make him less than God. It identifies him with God himself. Do we understand so far what I'm trying to get at here? I'll give you another example, okay? So think about it like this. One of the most famous verses of prophecy about the coming Messiah is in Isaiah 7. Take, like, it's written by, uh, by Isaiah to King Ahaz about 700 years before Jesus. He, like, like, Ahaz is worried about an attack coming to his people, but he won't turn to God. And, God, and so God speaks to Isaiah, and he says, listen, I'm gonna give you a sign that your enemies won't destroy my people. And by the way, this never happens in Isaiah. He's looking to a future event. And this is what he says. Here's the sign in Isaiah 7, 14, he says, therefore, and we actually sang about it a little bit earlier, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, literally, Emmanuel. Do you know what that name means? Let me tell you. It means God with us. God with us. Hey, the virgin will conceive. Well, we just read about that. And she'll give birth to a son. And you know what people will know him to be? God with us. Well, how does that work? Well, it works because he's the son of God. Because he is God. It's his name. It's who he is. And so if you were to go, and this is where people get tripped up, because what they want, like, there are verses throughout the New Testament that say and ascribe the divinity of of the Father to the Son. And people get tripped up because what they want is they, they want a, a 21st century verse. They want a verse that goes something like this. They, they want a verse to go, listen, Jesus is also God. Uh, don't get confused. Even though we call him God the Son, he's also God. That's what we want. All right? But what we're asking is not how they thought. So if you were to go to Peter or James or John or Paul or anybody who knew Jesus and who, who, who authored books in the New Testament and you were to ask, well, okay, is he the son of God or is he God? They would go, yes. What, what, I don't understand your question. Because to be the son of God is to be God, okay? And by the way, this isn't just about Jesus, like this type of thought, okay? Like when we talk about somebody sharing in the nature of their fathers. You, I mean, think about it like this. You, you find uh, people in the New Testament using this even in a condemning sense about things that weren't God. So I don't remember, uh, when it talks about John the Baptist, right? And he's baptizing people in the beginning of the Gospels and Pharisees come out, right? You remember what he says to them? He goes, you brood of vipers, like you sons of vipers, meaning like, like you are children of evil. You are evil is what he's saying to them. All right, but I mean, Jesus does it too. So for the person who thinks like Jesus always 
happy and fluffy and never rebukes. Here's a fun verse for you, John 8. Okay, this is what he says to people who reject him as Lord. John 8, 44, he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. Why? Because to have the devil's desire is to be in his camp, all right? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in it. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. And by the way, that's a, that's a divine claim right there. Because he's saying, whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. What's he saying? My words are the words of God. Right? I mean, like that, if they're scoffing at his teaching, he goes, listen, if you're part of the family of God, then you're gonna recognize that what I'm saying is true. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is why those who reject Jesus spend an eternity in hell. Because hell wasn't created for people, it was created for Satan. All right? And to reject Christ, to reject his kingship, to reject his lordship, is to throw your lot in with the nature of the devil. Okay? Like, to reject Christ, there is no, you know, I can be a really good person and hopefully God will bring me into heaven. No, no, you're rejecting the kingdom of the king of kings. And that's what heaven is. To reject his reign is to spend an eternity in fire. I'm sorry, I know that's unpopular. But I would be lying to you if that wasn't the case. Okay? And so, like, and then, and by the way, here's, I want you to notice how like, Jesus was like, listen, he said to these people, okay, you're of your father, the devil, Right? Here's why this is important. Because we live under a cultural lie that's flippant with the language of Father, particularly when it comes to God. How many times do you hear people say things like, we're all God's children? No, we're not. I mean, in the sense that he's the creator of the world, okay. But when it comes to being in the family of God, absolutely not. The Bible is very, very clear. Only those who have received Christ have been adopted into because they weren't born of natural means like Jesus was, but he's given us his standing with God. And so the only people who are in the family of God are those who have embraced Christ. Why? Because they've kissed the son. They've kissed the son. The only thing that makes you a child of God is receiving Christ. And you go, well, why is this such a big deal? Like, why do you keep hammering this idea that Jesus is fully God and also fully man? Here's why. Because if we believe that Jesus died to forgive our sins, we have to understand that only God can forgive our sins. Like, if we believe, okay, like, Jesus is the one who rights our wrong with God. Like, like David says this in Psalm 51, when he's talking about, like, his murder of Bathsheba's husband and his sexual assault there of her, and yet he has the audacity to say to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning, yeah, I sinned against her, but ultimately, like, the one I've really committed treason against is you. Like the guilt and shame of sin can only be absolved by the one who's ultimately be wronged, and that is God. So who can wipe it away? God. He's the only one who has the authority to forgive the debt. Enter the cross. This is the good news. We believe in Jesus' parentage, his kingship, but his divinity. It is such good news. Listen, please hear me. Sometimes like we come to church, right now I've confirmed your worst fears about church. 
what you've heard from me is, oh man, I'm so bad and God's so mad at me. And that's not what I'm saying at all. Here's what I'm telling you. God loves you like crazy. And so what he's done is he's wrapped himself in human flesh. He stepped down into the world and he's taken on himself because he didn't want you to take on yourself the penalty for our sins. Jesus died in our place to forgive our sin, to, to take the wrath of God and his justice on himself so that we wouldn't take it on us. So listen, there's no place for shame because Christ has removed it. Every person who believes that Jesus died for their sin and rose from the dead are completely forgiven by God. And the Bible says he'll make you a new person. So today, listen, if you're in a place where you would say you don't know Jesus, or maybe um, you walked away, you want to come back, or hey, how about this? Maybe you've had a hard time believing that God could really forgive your shame. Here's what I want to tell you. The mere existence of Jesus shows that he has, if you'll let him. If you'll let him. And feelings are a funny thing. <laughs> there are days, I, can I say this as a pastor? I don't feel like God loves me. I, I mean, just because feelings are like that. But I know even in those days that he does, because I know Jesus really did die for my sin and rise from the dead. And you can have that hope too. So that's where you are. I'd love for you to pray with me right now. Let's just pray. If you want to make him your Lord, if you want to invite him into your life, here's what you're going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Lord, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And I'm asking you, please take away my sin, fill me with your spirit, and show me how to follow you. I accept his kingship and his lordship over my life. In Jesus' name I pray.